In Australia, in May 2019, there was a big federal election. And despite the polls, like with Trump and Brexit, the Conservative forces won. Australia is also home to a big digital campaign organisation called GetUp. GetUp has never been popular with the Conservative Liberal National Party. Since 2005, GetUp has pushed the boundaries of how to campaign, experimenting with technology and forms of offline organising too. They have become big, over one million members, and they've played an active role in election campaigns. Today's Changemaker Chat is with GetUp National Director Paul Oosting. Our chat is about his journey into GetUp, and we explore some of the big challenges he faces as National Director today. In 2019, GetUp has come under extreme and sustained political attack. At a time when many civil society organisations are threatened, from climate groups to unions, Paul shares some of his insights about what it is like to live under pressure. For those who don't know much about GetUp, Changemakers episode number nine explores GetUp's 2016 election campaign. And full disclosure, I'm a fan of GetUp because I am one of its co-founders. Attacks and pressure are hard, but sometimes pressure can turn coal into diamonds. That's what created the first seeds of GetUp back in late 2004. So, all these years later, what is possible now? Let's find out. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Paul, it is a delight to have you on the show with us today. It's a delight to be here, Amanda. <laughs> so much energy. <laughs> but before we start, I want to, to tell our audience, some of whom will know Get Up if they're in Australia, but some of whom are overseas and might not know what this thing called Get Up is. What do you do as the head of Get Up and beyond that makes you a change maker? Well, we try to use the power of the crowd, people to influence decisions that impact on the sort of Australia we want to create, a more progressive Australia, uh, a kinder, a more just, a better environment and a fairer economy for all. And we harness the crowd largely using digital technology, email, um, social media, but increasingly also trying to organise over 10,000 volunteers from across the country who engage in our campaigns to push politicians, push corporate leaders to uh, make the decisions in the interests of all people and our planet. There are so many elements to the work of GetUp. You've got digital teams, you've got campaigning teams, you've got organising teams, you've got other parts of the organisation too. What is the, the, the part of the work that really draws your energy, gets you excited? Yeah, I think it's the crowd. I think it's like, you know, that's the thing that uh, really makes GetUp unique. That's really central to the DNA of who we are. Like, yes, we have amazing technologists, a digital team, amazing uh, policy makers and strategists, but at the end of the day, 
the sort of uh, heart of our work is how do we use the crowd, which is everyday people coming together to push the system to change in the way that's going to be better for, for all people, for the planet, create a more just society. And I think that's really interesting because it, it means that you have to really think about how do we make our campaigns meaningful and resonate in the lives of people who have a lot else going on day to day and also how do we make it accessible so that people can actually engage in an impactful way that the tactics and strategies we come up with actually are, you know, even if it's a long shot, going to have the possibility of creating that change. And, you know, sometimes that's a difficult equation to to round, but that's what motivates me actually. And that's what I think makes GetUp the most powerful um, political force that it can be and should be. You know, we're not always there and maybe we're not there yet, but that's the aim. Mm-hmm. And look, GetUp is one of a sort of uh, of a crowd perhaps of organisation, of digital campaigning organisations around the world that are part of this thing called the Open Network. Um, there's organisations like Move On, 38 Degrees, they're in um, I think 17 different countries. Mm, that's right. Um, what makes GetUp similar to, but most importantly for those overseas listeners, what makes GetUp different to um, those other groups? Yeah, it's a good question because we have a bunch of similarities. We're online, um, or at least we started online. So that's one of the commonalities between Move On in the US, Compact in Germany, or 38 Degrees in the UK. We're certainly progressive. We want to engage the crowd. But get up. one of the changes I think for us has been, particularly in the last few years, is that we unashamedly engage in the election cycles. We see that that's one of the key moments that change can occur, whether it's getting an issue onto the agenda of political parties, whether it's unseating those people standing in the way of progress on our issues, which can be really fundamental. So these are the sort of things that we see there's a key moment. I mean, the votes are like the currency of our political system is the reality of it. It's when people pay the most attention. So that's one thing. Um, we've, we've, as I mentioned, we've increasingly began to organise um, as opposed to just being online. We're now really thinking about how do we build our people power in really tangible and deep ways so that people can go out there and have deep conversations, connect heart to heart in the community on the issues that they matter, whether it be door knocking or phone banking, hosting events, or in time, hopefully running their own campaigns. What I actually want to take some time for is to to understand and for our listeners to be able to understand better why you got into this space. Like what drew you into this work of Get Up and to eventually run it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think back to growing up in Tasmania. Um, I lived in the island state of Tasmania in a regional area with pretty high unemployment and had grown up with a really deep connection to the environment and I had often imagined that's where I'd remain living and working um, and saw so much of that being destroyed actually, in my case in a literal way, old growth forests being destroyed, that um, my opa had had a family business in beekeeping and so we were literally seeing our family business be destroyed and eroded away. But I went off to study science at university and sort of didn't become as politicised as many people who become campaigners were and it wasn't until later that I began to think about the global threats that we're facing and looking at the data And the reality is that every major ecological indicator, whether it be water, clean air, 
um, species um, and obviously now the climate crisis, those indicators are in decline. We're facing this global catastrophe and I just felt that you know, working on the inside track within government or working in science wasn't going to be enough and that's what drew me to campaigning, this, this notion that actually we need radical change to the way we are engaging with the earth and what, what we live in our communities, um, in those fundamental settings on how we run our economies that are really now just destroying the lives of so many people. So that's what brought me to campaigning. And what brought me to get up was this, this sense that we were in campaigns to win them. We were in it to harness the crowd of people. Um, we were in it for positivity, for creating a positive vision for where Australia could go. There was a real sense of the possible that I saw from get up when, before I joined. Um, and that excited me. I wanted to be part of a team that even when it's difficult, even when the odds are absolutely stacked against you, you're going up against a federal government or major corporation that there's this real belief that actually people power harnessing the crowd of people can create that change um, and is where our creativity and our hope comes from. And I'm wondering, I guess also, why did you not choose to work for an environmental not-for-profit organisation? Mm. You've cho chosen to work for one that works on a variety of issues. Yeah, well, I think then I had been working for environment groups before I came to Get Up, and I think they have a, you know, an important and powerful place in civil society. Yeah, but I think the, what attracted me to Get Up is partly the notion that the membership and the crowd is central to the DNA of this organisation, and that's exciting and in, at times terrifying and difficult to work in. It's a fast-moving pace. It's We try to be real to the political and media cycles, and we also have to... Uh, listen and get better at listening to where our membership is is at but it's also more um, in line I think with the reality of how as a human I engage in politics my experience was connected to the environment but in reality I care about a lot of issues. I care about what's happening to my neighbours. I care about you know youth unemployment in central Queensland and what that reality is like growing up in a place where you don't have a lot of hope. Um, you don't have necessarily the ability to think that I could stay in my hometown and have a future here. And so I think we, we um, as campaigners have to think about the multiple crises that people are facing in their lives. Unemployment, underemployment, you know, just the precarious workforce of the gig economy alongside issues like human rights, environmental injustice and the climate crisis we're facing. And I think that's the great hope of an organisation like GetUp that is multi-issue, that, that at base it should be about values and not just issues or not just a single issue. So that that's, I think, the interesting nature of GetUp. It should be more in line with how people are engaging in the world around them. Mm, and coming at the systemic challenges, I guess, not seeing them as just... Uh putting your ambulance at the bottom of the cliff but trying to work out how you can stop people jumping off in the first place. Yeah, and that's what I found, something I think we've started to really grapple with over, over the life cycle of Get Up in a way because there's this huge ability for a movement like Get Up to be really responsive to tipping point moments, to coming in as the cavalry um, when there's momentum for change. But also we have to be real about, yeah, those deep systemic changes like what's happening with refugees and asylum seekers, um, not just here in Australia but globally in the 
West and the attacks on, on people that are seeking asylum with climate change, another global issue that really Australia as a major coal exporter is at the centre of these deep systemic changes. So it's actually not enough to be responsive to a political moment or the media cycle. We have to look at the longer term, the power that needs to be built to take on these deep issues and what the policies and solutions look like that are actually going to change the system and not replicate it. Mm, and so now you're not just working for GetUp, you, you are in charge of the organisation. What's, what's the most energising element of the role that you're now in as the National Director? Well, for me, it's like the, in the recent times, there's two examples that spring to mind, the uh, marriage equality survey and the recent federal election, despite the bruising outcome that it was and, and not getting the results that we were after. In both cases, we had thousands and thousands of people coming together from across Australia. We were reaching out to the rest of the Australian community, having heart-to-heart conversations about the issues we cared about, you know, marriage equality, of course, in relation to the marriage equality survey and a range of issues in the federal election, climate change, health and hospitals and so forth. And there's a huge energy there when people are coming together and it has spread beyond a centralised focus or centralised management where there's people out there doing things, hundreds of groups that are meeting, events happening on a daily basis, conversations that are happening, a sense of loss of control, but in a positive way that actually this is a real movement and something is taking fire. So, you know, that to me is super energising and exciting when those things come together. Cool. So now I want to start exploring what some of the emerging lessons and challenges are for GetUp this year, right? Like this year has been a big year. And I'm actually, let's just keep going with this question around the election, right? That was, you know, you ran a massive election campaign. GetUp was very visible as, as a force in many seats against the hard right in particular, but it also manifests against the, the current government as a whole. But but the government won. What have you learnt? What have you learnt out of this, as you describe it, a bruising, <laughs> bruising moment? Yeah, there were lots of lessons and I'm so thankful of our membership who've engaged so deeply in the election review. We've had literally hundreds of meetings across the country, face-to-face, um, small groups to large, and then a lot of other people that have engaged online and also for our donors who've contributed to us to be able to engage experts um, in helping us to analyse you know, the data that we gathered through making phone calls and going door knocking or being able to do things like focus groups and go and hear from the voters we were trying to reach um, who might have indicated that they were planning to vote progressive or vote against the hard right and ultimately didn't and understand why that was. But, yeah, a couple of lessons got the polling wrong. So did everyone from the Liberal Party to the Labor Party to the media outlets. But there are some serious lessons there and how we can learn to better listen to what's happening in a community on the ground, being more attuned to that. Second lesson. Can I ask, like what? Like how could you do that differently? I don't know. Um, I think we... Let's work it out. Yeah, we have to work it out. We have the luxury of having an amazing in-house sophologist. So we're grappling with this question. We're looking back over um, where the trends were or what data was wrong. Um, Certainly there's been a lot of discussion around how pollsters have been dividing out the undecided voters, which actually in the lead up to this election was very large. But the the two PP or the two party uh, vote that we get presented was a bit misleading in terms of how close things were. But also... I think we do have lessons from where we've run successful campaigns in being attuned to, I guess, the mood on the ground.
ground, um, like in the Wentworth by-election when climate change really took fire or our campaign in Bass in 2016 when the issue of the local hospital, the Launceston General Hospital, again, took real hold of that community and it was the key topic. So there's a bunch of work there, I think, to combine better polling and better data, but also with closer listening within the communities. And so we've got to work out those processes right now. Don't have the answers, but it's certainly something that's front of mind for us. It is a question, like, what does it take to build that kind of election-winning momentum? Because, um, you know, Labor governments have not won election that often federally. And mm. I, I similarly remember the 2007 election and that had a... You could feel that there was going to be a change in government before there was a change in government. And despite everyone's hope this time... Yeah. And I was one of the hopers too, don't get me wrong. I thought that it wouldn't be the result it was, but it didn't feel like 2007. No, it didn't. And it did in the lead up though, I think. There were moments over the last year and a half, whether it be, again, the marriage equality survey or the various by-elections, where it did feel like there was a mood to change. In fact, I think everyone assumed there was going to be uh, either a significant a, a change of government or a very significant landslide change of government. And actually that mood changed. And I think part of that comes down and was going to be one of my second points around what we've learned from the election to the campaign run by conservatives. They ran a huge campaign. In an, in a historical context, it was the most expensive campaign ever in Australia's history. Not only were there, you know, the usual corporate lobby groups like the Real Estate Institute or the, the Minerals Council and the like doing their work and, of course, the coalition running its campaign, which was very well funded, but also we had new players like the mining magnate Clive Palmer who wants to open up a new coal basin in the Galilee Basin in central Queensland, spending $70 million to help the coalition and attack the Labor Party. So these are... These are things that we hadn't seen coming, actually. So there was a, you know, again, got to own your mistakes. There was a mistake there and not seeing the scale of conservative spin and backlash that would occur. If you had seen it, what would you have done differently? Well, when you combine those two things, we would have run a fundamentally different campaign if we had have known where the polling was going and if we had have known the scale of um, things like the Clive Palmer spend, it would have looked very differently. We were planning a campaign based on the data we'd seen and the mood we'd, we'd felt for a year and a half that there was a... a you know, I get the the public there was a mood and a shift for, for change. In reality, there wasn't. The swing ended up in the opposite direction. So, you know, we were working in, for instance, a number of safe seats that were very difficult. We might not have been working in those seats. And secondly, yeah, we would have done a lot more to counter, I think, the fake news that we saw come out. You know, post-election, I was talking to people who were really worried about the impact of the death tax on them and their family. I mean, this is a, a, an issue that was completely made up, a complete and utter lie, but it was backed by, a, you know, a tens of millions of dollars of advertising. You know, we saw far right, far right accounts proliferate on Facebook to spread this. We saw the coalition pick it up in their advertising and direct mail pieces and so forth. Um, and it was, you know, complete and utter fabrication. So I think in the future, we need to do more to think about how to counter disinformation fake news and these tens of millions of dollars that can be spent on advertising, propagating misleading information. Mm. Are there any other key lessons you've taken away? Well, the other one for us, actually, you know, we have to own mistakes and, and the reality that we took on the hard right and in most cases didn't succeed. But when I look at what our members achieved, actually, there's other lessons that are positive. Almost 10,000 people came together doing really hard stuff, making phone calls, 
to people that they hadn't met to have deep conversations about issues they cared about over the phone or going door knocking. And what our data shows us is that many of those conversations were impactful. They did shift hearts and minds. Those calls were persuasive. There was a tsunami that came over the top in the other direction, but the campaign that we plan to run with our members, that member-led work was impactful. So for us, that's a huge foundation to grow from and build on despite the outcome. What about how you campaign on climate change? Yeah, look, it wasn't um, in some respects the primary focus of our campaign. We had decided the primary focus was to take on the hard right of the coalition to try and unseat this faction that has had such a detrimental impact in pulling our politics in the wrong direction. But I think there's there's a, actually a number of grass shoots there in terms of climate change. We did see in a, in a range of um, seats across the country that awareness now is quite high. I think at the highest it's probably ever been in Australia. That doesn't necessarily translate to it being a voting issue. So I think that's one of the real challenges now for those that want to have a safe climate um, safe, you know, and a planet to live on um, is how do we actually make sure that when we come to things like voting that the saliency of this issue remains high and the, the depth of awareness is such that it can withstand the disinformation and fake news that we know is going to come. And I think uh, the, uh, the unfortunate reality is that, that those sort of counter campaigns, we haven't seen it yet actually. It's a bit like how we were a little unprepared for the scale of fake news and the Palmer campaign this cycle. I think in the future, we need to be prepared for much bigger um, campaigns from the fossil fuel sector and those trying to maintain the status quo because Australia has seen this before. We yeah, saw, like you're not allowed to talk about climate change when there are bushfires, for instance. Exactly. but And we, we also don't need to think back that historically, like the mining resource rent tax campaign where almost $100 million was spent by the mining sector. We know that they can and will leverage resources at an, to enormous extent. Clive Palmer went there this cycle, but we could and will see that in the future as the community ramp up their calls for action on climate change. So that's something that's really difficult to grapple with. So how do you make climate change an issue that people vote on? Like how do you connect it to to their day-to-day? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. One is we need to be real about those crises that people are facing in the, in their lives. Things like the huge unemployment rate, underemployment, precarious work. And we need to look at solutions like a jobs guarantee where the government would play an active role in solving that problem. We can't pretend that the neoliberal market is going to solve that crisis. It's just not. So when we go into areas like central Queensland or northwest Tasmania where I grew up, we actually need to have proactive solutions around how we can both transform transition our economy out of fossil fuels, but also ensure that people have employment. And these are the sort of reforms Australia has gone through before. It's not that radical. Um, we, we once insisted on there being um, free education for everyone. Oh, isn't that radical? Yeah. Imagine, imagine edu- educating the entire nation. I know, right? What a crazy idea. But back, but it wasn't always the status quo and it, did, and it was for a period radical to ask for that. So we need to think about how do we actually meet the other needs of our communities and, and of people that are suffering on the front line, particularly particularly First Nations communities, regional and rural areas, they need to be consulted. We need to listen to them and address those those challenges and crises that they're facing in their lives as well. And we do need to, I think, connect it back to um, the reality of our day-to-day lives, actually, because we have at times slipped into the bad habit of talking about this as national federal policy or overly emphasising politicians who the Australian public are totally fed up with. You know, as I sit here today, my, my lungs are filled with smoke from bushfires. Um, Right now, across Sydney, over 5 million people are suffering. We're having 
massive spikes and people being admitted to hospital with asthma as the country faces unprecedented bushfires where the scientists are clearly saying this is worse because of climate inaction. We need to hold the government responsible for that. But we also need to make it clear that these impacts on our day-to-day -day lives, like our kids being admitted to hospital with asthma attacks, are going to get worse unless we act. Mm, mm. Thank you. So let's move on to something else because that's not the only thing that happened for Get Up this year. <laughs> Soon after the election, and actually before the election as well, Get Up became sort of flavour of the month punching bag for uh, a variety of conservative <laughs> right forces, you know, the newspapers, for individual politicians, and for pundits. And not just conservatives. <laughs> and, and also not just conservatives. You sort of became um, a topic of interest amongst, amongst your uh, adversaries, a variety of adversaries. You know, I, I think for those in Australia, people have, so, have, have probably seen it in the press. For those overseas, they've probably seen this kind of thing happen to organisations, um, other organisations. I'm interested in understanding what is it like to be running an organisation that is being treated like a punching bag by um, big power forces that be? What is it like to be in your role during this? Yeah, it's difficult. It's it's difficult, it's stressful, it's exhausting, but you have to deal with it. You have no choice. And at the same time, as a leader, you have to balance, you know, the the most obvious thing that everyone says to you when you ask for advice about how to address these moments is that you can't be distracted by it. So on the one hand, you have to solve the problem, you're being attacked. Somebody's saying they're going to wipe your organisation out. On the other, you have to keep on with the work that you have to do. We've got an amazing movement of volunteers from across the country. We have to take the next steps on that program to build up our people power, to be winning the campaigns they care about and working on those issues um, like Medivac legislation that's under debate in Australian Parliament right now where the government wants to repeal legislation for doctors to properly treat those um, being held in our offshore detention. So there's urgent and immediate work and it is really difficult. The Prime Minister of Australia has said that he wants to stop our um, our organisation from engaging in politics, from being able to fundraise, that is actually something we should take very seriously. It's actually a very grave and sinister threat in a Western democracy. And the sad thing is, as you mentioned, we, you know, we're not alone, whether it be other organisations in Australia, the media outlets that have been raided, whistleblowers who are being um, stamped on, unions that are being threatened by being closed down. But globally, um, we know other civil society organisations are facing similar threats and far, far, far worse, of course, actually. We are still in a very privileged position here in Australia. But there is a trend and that trend, of course, is right-wing populist authoritarianism. We're seeing governments like uh, here in Australia, the Philippines, Brazil, um, elements of it in the UK and other parts of, uh, of Europe and certainly Donald Trump's administration trying to stamp out democratic participation, that whether that be drowning it out with fake news and disinformation or literally trying to stop people exercising their democratic rights and their free speech. So what does it mean on a – like I know you say it's stressful, it's hard. <laughs> Maybe some more detail possibly about – what does it actually mean for the organisation? What does it mean for the staff? What does it mean for the membership? Have you, how have you seen it manifest as, as not only stress but as, um, as f sort of forces and features that you can do something about? Yeah, like it's, it manifests in so many different ways. Um, you know, a couple of months ago on a Saturday morning, waking up to see across TV news and across 
all media outlets, not just News Corporation, but all media outlets running stories accusing our organisation of being anti-Semites and misogynists, complete and utter lies based on no facts. Um, and of course, um, very few of the, the media outlets asked the Prime Minister for any facts. Um, and so this ran across the country and then we had to spend two days um, protecting our reputation and correcting the record. But of course, by then, the damage is done. These smear campaigns work when a Prime Minister gets full and open coverage without journalists even coming to our organisation for comment. So there's, you know, a bunch of, bu- bunch of, you know, that that's just so stressful on a personal level, not just for staff, but for volunteers as well who love and have invested so much time, energy and, and their own finances in this movement to see its reputation being deliberately smeared in that way is damaging. We see cabinet ministers leaning on regulators like the ATO, um, our taxation office, uh, the Australian Electoral Commission and others to do these um, investigations into GetUp, which are clearly, again, uh, done deliberately to smear our reputation and waste our time and resources engaging in these investigations, which are clearly and deliberately politicised and to try and stop the critics of the government. And so it's stressful, but we've learned a lot from it over the years. It's, it's not the first time that GetUp's come under attack. We've become something uh, something of, of experts at dealing with these things. So on that, like if you were giving advice to another organisation who found themselves under attack, what suggestions would you have for how they should orient themselves? What are the sort of key tips for how to respond to this? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I I find myself being asked by a lot of organisations from around the world at the moment, actually, who are taking on the far right or standing up to conservative governments, um, being under attack in a range of ways. And um, it's something I'm really happy to be talking to people about because I'm, I'm hopeful that our experience can be useful to others. You know, I think I think our team has learned to come together around these moments and get each other's backs because actually it can be really stressful and, and in fact will be stressful. That I think is unavoidable, but learning to manage it and put it in the context of how you're being treated is important to understand the nature of the campaign that's being run against you. So can I lift that up? So it's actually really important to understand the public dimensions mm. of this crisis, the political dimensions, the populism, the authoritarianism. It's not just personal stress it's not just a, a bad day yeah that that it actually seeing the the public dimensions of it are critical yeah that's right and i mean I, it's a bit of campaign jargony so apologies for that but i think about it like a campaign from their point of view you know the the prime minister has indicated he wants to stop our organization from being out of fundraise from engaging in um, free speech and election campaigns and so think about that's a campaign okay we, we're good at running campaigns we can plan things out we can work out where we we need to go with the public, with our members, with the media. That's what's happening to us. So let's think about it from that point of view in reverse. And then you start to realise, oh, they're trying to damage our brand or they're trying to build momentum here to change legislation or leaning on regulators. Um, and you start to see the the context in which, which you're being attacked and it feels a bit less abstract and therefore a bit less stressful. And you can start to think methodically about how do you best prepare or address those criticisms, attacks, smears or attempts to change legislation. And, you know, like a good neuroscientist would say, it takes the issue out of your emotional freaked out brain and places it into your prefrontal cortex so you yeah, can right. think oh, that's, about that's it. That's a good explanation. <laughs> but, yeah, that makes sense to me. And, yeah, being logical, having a plan, just doing that that work, uh, yeah, definitely is very cathartic, if nothing else, to know what's coming at you and why. 
And also, you know what you know how to run a campaign, as you described, yeah. right? Like you're putting it into into you something that's within your experience, as mm. opposed to an attack which feels kind of outside of it. Yeah, you have something in your control. We may not be able to control what the media outlets are going to write or what will be on the front page tomorrow, but we have a plan. And also, I think the other big lesson that I would say to people, because I know that when when I was in this leadership role um, back in 2016, 2017. We got stuck um, inside in our heads a little bit too much um, and then one of the big lessons for me was actually to bring in the movement, to bring in the membership to what was happening and and thankfully for GetUp, they 110% have our back and respond really, really strongly in moments of our organisation, our movement being under attack and that's important because then again, it's that sense we've got each other's back, we're, we're strong in our shoes, we're, our feet are rooted on the ground and we're confident to take care our uh, campaigns forward or to stand up to the government, which we can never take for granted. Lots of organisations, lots of movements have actually crumbled is the reality, it's harsh to say, but to the pressure of these attacks. So that's one thing. Um, and And I think there's a second element to it as well in that it's important for for instance, if we're attacked by our Home Affairs Minister, um, Peter Dutton, for him to know that when he attacks us, he makes us stronger. Our members will donate, they'll commit more time and to volunteer and actually he's growing our movement every time that he attacks us. That's an important lesson that uh, the, the forces opposing us need to see and hear. Yeah. I think I love that irony actually, that, that actually when an organisation that is loved by the crowd, not by just a few people, but Mm. by the crowd, that um, attacking them with this crazy authoritarian populism actually makes them stronger. Yeah. And I think there's there's going to be a lot to learn there as Prime Minister Scott Morrison leads these attacks on so many in civil society. It's not, as I say, it's not just get up, it's media outlets, it's whistleblowers, it's the union movement, it's the environment movement, it's the human rights sector, it's legal councils, you know, the list could go on, that we actually get each other's backs. Because the other problem I've, I've felt at times um, in a leadership role here is can become very isolating. And that's, as I say, difficult as an individual and it's difficult, I think, as a movement. We're better when we stand up to the bully together and that sends a really clear message actually they can pick they can't and shouldn't be able to pick us off individually indeed if by attacking all of these different organizations all of these different organizations started to congeal relationships and come together Mm. yeah (laughs) i just want to ask my final question about the press club in today you've spoken a lot about these populist times that we live in we can feel the effects of climate change here in Sydney and people in other places can can feel it even worse, much mm. worse. You're one of Australia's leading campaign strategists. What should we all do? What should we be doing? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the only answer to the crisis that we're in is people power, actually. When you think about the, the number of different ways that democracy and free speech is being attacked and the scale of solutions that we need. Actually, I don't think anything else could work. And to give you a bit of a flavour of what I mean there, when you think about fake news and dif- disinformation, right, what's the solution to that? We, we, we're unlikely to have the hundreds of millions of dollars for advertising campaigns that Palmer and the, the Minerals Council that want to open up more fossil fuel reserves have. But what we can have is a network of connected people who can unpick and 
pop holes in that fake news and remain connected enough that actually it won't resonate in the first place. And when we think about the attacks on our organisations, again, we know we're stronger when we stand together and that these um, changes won't come about if we oppose them. And we know, though, we also need to get out and reach out to to workers, to the union movement, to those areas that are facing um, above 25% youth unemployment, which is just so devastating, and find out what are the solutions that they need in their community. We need to speak to First Nations people about what's happening on their land, their land rights, and, and what the coming climate crisis means for them and move forward from that basis. And, and finally, and most importantly, I think we have to proactively grow our movements. We need to be, in a sense, evangelical about bringing in new people because actually the scale we're at now is not sufficient. We need to have at least 10 times as many people, if not 100 times as many people engaging and saying, no, things won't move forward unless we can solve these crises that are facing us. And what about how this people power manifests in action? Like there's a lot of different types of action that we're seeing emerge at the moment. And I think from student strikes and other strikes. We're seeing XR take direct action, lots of glue. It's very exciting. There's lots of forms. Uh, You're talking about uh, a bunch of relational working communities, sort of a listening strategy. What should people be doing? Well, I I think we we can't have protests without the connection to the communities that are being impacted. Like that is the real challenge for us now. And I think it's taking what's a hard problem and I'm making it more difficult, but I think it has to be seen in that way, actually. We we can't leave regional and rural areas behind. We can't allow our communities to be divided because clearly that's our Prime Minister's strategy. He's very explicitly leaning into this moment. He's saying he's going to pass laws to stop secondary boycotts of climate activists um, and a range of other attacks because he thinks that's his strategy. It's division. It's, you know, he, he, we've seen it with Donald Trump. We've seen it in other, um, from other authoritarian leaders around the world. So our solutions, you know, protest, unfortunately, is not going to be enough in my view. We also need to, to find the solutions to connect with the communities, to connect even with our neighbours. Um, even in the inner city, um, actually, we need to expand our movement and bring everyone with us on this journey. Otherwise, we're going to be playing into the division that Scott Morrison very much wants. Mm, mm. And it's that sentiment, that idea of, of, of a connectivity and not to criticise each other but to organise together seems to be what's successful in so many places around yeah. the world right now. And even places like Hong Kong where there's controversial action, there, there's not people attacking each other. There's sort of a level of solidarity that yeah, seems that's to work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm not going to criticise people for getting up and taking action. I just think we need to be smart about how we do it. My final question is that I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners what do you think the most important lesson is about making change? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Well, I think it's people power, right? Like I think what really matters when we look at social movements from around the world or when radical change has occurred, it's when public opinion has become it's hit a threshold moment. It's become unstoppable, whether that's through activism or whether the public are just demanding the change that they want to see in their lives, the right to vote, free education, you know, other forms of massive change that we've seen from the Eureka stockade to the Franklin blockade. There's a lot of lessons there around bringing the majority of people with us, even if that is in the opinion they hold or the voice that they're willing to raise to their neighbour. Uh, that's what we need to get to right now. We need to think big. We need to think about how do we have 75% of Australians demanding action on the causes that matter to us. That's the sort of vision that we need to have, I think. We need to build a bigger, stronger community. 
Excellent. I love Get Up because it does think big, right? And it's just been so delightful to talk with you today, get these insights and hopefully share them with thousands and thousands of people around the country. Thanks for having me, Amanda. It is my pleasure. Cool. Thanks. Thanks so much. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.